Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance, or on the podcast. Uh, today we're at the limits of science. We'll be asking, what is science and what's special about it? When does the scientific method apply? When doesn't it? And what do we do then? To help me find the answer to these and related questions, with me in the studio are Ken Jeems from Birkbeck College and the New College of the Humanities, Gary Ritalik from Birkbeck and the Workers' Educational Association, and Dean Peters from the LSE. So first, just to introduce you guys, can you each tell us what's your particular interest in the philosophy of science, starting with you, Dean, I suppose, because you're... Um, yeah, so um, I'm currently doing my PhD and my work is mainly in scientific realism, which is um, basically the notion that our best scientific theories are roughly true. They describe the world as it is. Uh, do you be- are you for or against the notion? I am ambivalent okay. and professionally ambivalent, yeah, so I, uh, I give a sort of middle position. All right, that'll probably come out a bit in the discussion. I, I think, Ken, what's your interest in philosophy of science? Well, I think the thing that got me most interested in philosophy of science was the notion of testability, because uh-huh. there are so many different theories out there, and I was very enamored of some of the most strange theories when I was younger, for instance, Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh-huh. But that raised questions about how would we ever know if such questions are true? And researching those kind of issues got me very heavily into philosophy of science. Okay, what, is that the area you're interested in now? As far as philosophy of science goes, I'm still interested in Freud, and I'm still interested in Nietzsche, but I am interested in questions of what makes for a scientific versus a non-scientific theory, and how do we test scientific theories. Okay, we'll also get into that, I'm sure. Uh, Gary, what's your interest in the, in the philosophy of science? I, I think I come at the question from two positions, because uh-huh. uh, um, I'm interested in the actual philosophical issues uh, which of are what, what constitutes uh-huh. science, and whether we can actually give definitions and uh-huh. indeed the whole um, postmodernist critique of science is something that um, I've read on. Um, I'm also coming at it from the position of studying um, physics mm-hmm. and physicists I think have quite a different attitude towards philosophy uh, than philosophers has, have towards physicists. Yeah, and uh, Looking down on them perhaps. Yes, indeed. I mean I think um, Richard Feynman once said that uh, philosophy of science is about as useful to physicists as ornithology is to birds. Mm-hmm. So I think um, that it's also an issue that interests me, where, where we actually position um, ourselves as scientists in relation to a, a philosophy. OK, that's all stuff. That we... so, so we're going to start with um, considering the scientific method. I found this in a book called The Philosophy of Science Teach Yourself by Mel Thompson, and his summary of the scientific method, he says, just read this briefly, in practice, the scientific method works like this. Evidence is gathered and irrelevant factors are eliminated as far as possible. Conclusions are drawn from that evidence, which lead to the framing of a hypothesis. Experiments are devised to test out the hypothesis by seeing if it can correctly predict the results of the experiment. If necessary, the hypothesis is modified to take into account the results of those later experiments... A general theory is framed from the hypothesis and its related experimental data. That theory is then used to make predictions on the basis of which it can be either confirmed or disproved. I suppose that's like a fairly standard model of what science does. But I think, Ken, you mentioned you wanted to critique that a bit. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a caricature, and especially the first part. I mean, the first part of what you read, the idea that one just 
collects data almost in the blue and then comes up with a hypothesis, yeah. is really what got Popper going. We Sorry, this is Sir Karl Popper, philosopher of science of last century, right. who uh, worked at the LSE, actually. The LSE. Yeah. Popper is prob- probably the philosopher who's most known to philosophers, uh, to uh, actual working scientists. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons Popper got so much mileage is because he made fun of that kind of philosophy. Well, so what's wrong with it, then? Well, the idea that one just collects data in the blue, what kind of data? That the sky is blue, that there's a desk before me, that what, or someone who comes up with the idea that n- electrons are negatively charged. What, he looks at one electron and sees it's negatively charged, looks at another. I mean, it's just not how it works. What okay. Popper uh, pointed out is scientists come up with bold conjectures. Right. It's not like they start with data, but Popper said more like they start with theory because they've already been versed in theory and they might develop that in different ways or that might give them an association or a new idea. The second part of that is more to the point. It says that there's a certain kind of testability to science, that once you've got your conjecture or your hypothesis, and God knows where where it came from, Mm -hmm. a very famous example is Kepler corrected the Copernican theory by saying the planets travelled in elliptical orbits rather than circular orbits. Right. And the reason he said that wasn't because he'd made some special observations. It was because he had these mad alchemical beliefs about the ellipse being more perfect than the circle. Uh, so it just came out of nowhere. It's got nothing pertinent well, to Well, the point I want to make is it's not that it came from the data. And Pop is quite right that conjectures come from all kind of crazy associations. That's not where the law and order and the rigour comes in. It's not in where you get your conjecture, but it's rather, as the second part of that quotation said, how you test it. That is, the claim was you derive empirical consequences, and if those are borne out, it adds to the credibility. Sidebar, I'll just make one little point. Uh-huh. Popper disagreed with that. And this is the part that no, m- most scientists have no awareness that Popper actually said. What Popper actually said, and Popperians often try to cover this up, is don't mean how many positive tests uh, theory passes, you've got no reason to believe the theory will be successful in the future. Not that you can't be certain that you've got no yeah, reason. That's what they call the problem of induction. Well, I mean, what do you think, uh, say, Dean, about um, what Ken just said? Do, I mean, do you agree with it, or are there substantial areas where you disagree? Well, um, I think, uh, uh, again, I'm going to be kind of ambivalent on it, right? So, so Popper did have this distinction between the context of discovery and the context of justification, which I think what Ken was talking about, right? So the context of discovery is you might just have any sort of mad idea and then you test that using a kind of logical procedure. But I don't think... Um, I mean, so Ke- Ke- the example of Kepler having some sort of mystical attachment to the idea of ellipses or egg-shaped orbits, and that might be an extreme case. I mean, there do seem to be lots of cases where um, just through relatively systematic observation of what's going on around us, we do come to hypotheses. Those might not be good hypotheses, and they will be subsequently overthrown by later rounds of the sort of Popperian testing you're talking about. But I don't think we can kind of eliminate... Um, this kind of inductive systematic observation that was yeah. talked about here. Uh, so, I mean, sorry for use of this word. Induction means you look at the world and gather observations and evidence from it, basically. Is that is that fair enough? Um, Gary, is there just one science scientific method? I mean, high-energy particle physics is very different from categorising beetle species in the rainforest. So, you know, is would you say there is one scientific method or are there sort of several different ones? I, I think the problem is uh, when we try to give a definition of scientific method as if it were a single activity. Right. I think there are a, a broad range of approaches which are brought together. And um, I, was, I was thinking about this before the show and, uh, and I thought perhaps a kind of essential part of scientific method is a combination of theorising with observation uh-huh. and what the 
high energy particle physicist has in common with the biologist studying beetle species is they're both looking at the natural world but you don't you don't do an experiment if you're a biologist do you? if you're sort of categorizing species you can't do an experiment you so don't that's true but you have to access i mean one of the things about beetles is they're a lot more accessible than particles uh-huh. um so in the case of particles we have to build large uh, particle accelerators like the one at CERN in order to be able to see them but ultimately what is then being done um, on one level is just categorizing the particles which are seen uh-huh. and then trying to give an underlying um, hypothesis to explain why we have the particles we do and I would say that probably in some sense this is what a biologist is doing they are looking at the different um, connections between the uh, species of beetles and, and uh, would be looking for example at the DNA of those beetles so, certainly these days so, so what place does experiment have in science it's, I mean if it's not uh, necessary for it but it's like extremely useful then why do we always associate uh, science with experiments I mean why what why do we have to have experiments when sometimes we can have, get away with observations I guess is what I'm asking uh, well I've, I mean I can carry on sure. on that if you like sure. um, uh, certainly I think one of the issues in in physics that we have these days mm. is that theoretical physics is estimated to be about 20 to 30 years ahead of our ability to test it All right. and the testability tends to go in jumps so until they build the next biggest particle accelerator we can't really test All right, so you the just theories got that we've got and, and certainly there's some worry that um, theory I mean this is what really distinguishes science from other areas is that theory um, unless it can be tested is really metaphysics in some sense yeah but that's so, so that's what all the, your particle your string theorists are doing is is philosophy really rather than Indeed. science. Is that a fair comment? Anybody want to disagree well, with that? I want to, take, I want to take up the point that Gary was making that testability can lag a long way after the theoretical formulations. In fact, uh, one of the most famous papers is a paper by Einstein, Rosen, Podorsky, okay. where they just on a theoretical basis said, look, if quantum mechanics is true, you're going to have these really, really strange results, these impossible correlations. And the paper was published as it was an a priori refutation of quantum mechanics. In other words, it was armchair science. Well, what, yes, Einstein, Rosen, Podorsky were doing armchair science in a certain way. They were saying, look at the consequences of it. This can't possibly be true. But eventually they built the machinery which allowed to test... And the exact results that they said are impossibly incoherent, weird correlations between particles way, way apart, turned out those correlations were there. So they've proven now that uh, two particles that were once connected over different sides of the galaxies remain connected even faster than the speed of light. In a certain sense, that's right. And what that meant was, for a lot of people, is that quantum mechanics predicted something that was astronomically improbable, unless you already believe quantum mechanics. It turned out to be true, but that was to the credit of quantum mechanics. And it was the improbability of the prediction which helped, yeah. Exactly. Okay, yes. I, would, I would actually like to jump in on that because that goes directly to my interest, which is scientific realism, right? So right. whereas, as Ken mentioned earlier, Popper thought that you could never uh, show the truth of a hypothesis, no matter, you know, you make... You can a, never prove it, absolutely. You can, you can never prove the truth of a hypothesis. Even if it makes predictions and those predictions turn out to be true, what that tells you is that the, the hypothesis isn't false. We can't, we can't yeah. know it to be false yet. But 
but what it's, it's like, working so far it's working so far right as but the w- man who fell off out of the 20 story window say so passing every window <laughs> exactly what the the scientific realist says and this is uh, what's called the no miracles argument is yeah. which says that if we predict something so improbable right Right. There seems to be no way that could have happened were our theory not in fact true. Right? Yeah. So that seems to be a claim that we can get something more secure than the Popperian method using this notion of prediction. But there's lots of examples from the history of science of, of that sort of thing, like Einstein's bending, lights bending around the sun in an eclipse and things like that, isn't there? So, you know, it's a well-established scientific fact. And I think that's what shows the connection between theory and you asking about why does experiment have such an important role. Um, And and certainly Popper would have taken this view that it is the testability of the theory that makes it a good theory. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what Popper then says is if a theory can't be falsified, it's not a genuine scientific theory. How do you know if a theory can be falsified or not? It's a very good question. <laughs> well, Popper's account of falsifiability, and this was also a major mistake on his part, it was that a theory is falsifiable if there is some possible observation yeah. which conflicts with it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, oh except sure. there's a huge, huge gap here. Uh-huh. It doesn't account for statistical hypotheses. Because the thing about a th- a st- uh, statistical hypotheses, like this coin is fair... Right. So if you know a coin a hundred times, it's going to statistically end up 50-50, but you can't tell on each throw well, what it's going to be. That's the problem. You could, have, you could have a fair coin, right. and it's still logically possible that you have, 50, you have 100 heads in a row. Yeah. See, the point is no observation falsifies it. And he said what it is to be scientific isn't that it's made improbable by a certain run of observations, that it's logically falsified. And statistical hypotheses, which count a good deal of, for instance, physics these days, right. are not falsifiable. So Popper had a point. Popper was right in saying, look, Freud and Adler and psychotherapy, for instance, psychotherapeutical theories, and you, you can't point to what observations will falsify them, and that separates them because from a lot of physics. Because you can always reinterpret the theory according to whatever the data you have. The theory seems to yeah. fit every observation. I mean, some people would yeah. dispute this, but it's got a certain kind of flexibility. Uh-huh. But the trouble is, he, he, it's like he fetishized falsifiability and tried to make it the be-all and end-all. Uh-huh. It works with a lot of theories. It doesn't work with statistical theories. Okay, where do we go from there? Well, another issue is that... All theories have a certain amount of flexibility in them, right? So, well, uh, Freud- give me an example. Sorry, I don't really. Well, okay. So, so Freudian psychoanalysis is extremely flexible. I think we all agree on that. But even so, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity is flexible in a certain way. So, there's this prediction, famous prediction that the starlight from the light from stars as it passes near the sun will shift its yeah. direction yeah. Um, due to the gravity of the sun. Um, but when we make that observation, we're always relying on other sorts of hypotheses about what we're going to expect, right? So do our telescopes work well? Uh, if we're making an observation from within the Earth's atmosphere, is the aberration, is the atmosphere um, creating an aberration in what we observe? All these sorts of what's called auxiliary hypotheses, right? Yeah. So hypotheses you need to put alongside your main hypothesis if you want to test it properly yeah. are involved, even when we test kind of paradigm cases of best scientific theories, right? So that's a, another major weakness of Popper's account, right? This kind of notion of flexibility goes a lot further than it's presented under the Can I just, one example of that is that recent experiment with the Hadron uh, accelerator. When the result came that there were neutrinos allegedly accelerating through the speed of light, a lot of people in the profession, and you saw it on a lot of scientific blogs, said instrument failure. 
So it's not like there was this decisive refutation. And this is one of the things that Kuhn has made so much mileage of. So Thomas Popper, Kuhn, another philosopher of science, a successor, uh, if you like, uh, to Popper. Uh, he said, Popper acts as if there are decisive refutations. And Kuhn said, well, look, it's exactly because Dean said, if you get a result that's a huge anomaly to a very well-entrenched established theory, people will plead there's some special circumstances as instrument yeah. failure. And sometimes they're right. Okay. Um, Gary, as a practising scientist, what approach do you take to this whole idea of what it is to be a scientific theory and what is needed? I I think um, when one is doing science, one tends to work within a particular uh, paradigm. Which which is, again, is uh, is Thomas Kuhn's theory is that um, science evolves through paradigms or uh, structures that sort of dictate how things are to be seen and then uh, you swap one for another. Exactly, that's right. And and one of the things that Kuhn says is during what he calls normal science, phases Mm -hmm. of normal science, where you get the kinds of problems coming up like neutrinos apparently travelling faster than speed of light but those can usually be balanced out and um, a lot of science during that phase is very um, productive and it produces lots of theories which do make successful predictions. Um, Just to illustrate sorry, sorry, just to illustrate this what would you say the paradigm of particle physics is now? Ah, that's again... um, there's something called the standard model, right. which most physicists take as their working model. Uh, I think the relation that physicists have to that standard model is an interesting one in the context of our discussion because I think many of them use it as a working hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And certainly those who are working within, for example, supersymmetry, which is an extension of the standard model, but some aspects of supersymmetry would imply different results to the standard model. So they are quite happy to switch between different working models which would give different results. Depending on what experiment they do. Exactly, and in the absence of those results, they're they're quite happy to stand on both and jump between them, depending on what they're doing. Okay. Um, All right, then, to what extent are sociology and psychology sciences, according to what you all said? Uh, Ken, do you want to go for that one, since you mentioned Freud? <laughs> I had an um, old um, philosophy teacher, David Stove, who used to refer to the intellectual slums. I'm, I'm, not, saying, <laughs> I'm not saying I'm in, endorsing that. We've got uh, a crowd of I, mad psychologists outside the studio. But I have to say, studio. one of the attractions of Kuhn, I think, for a lot of people, is that uh, there was a period, for instance, under behaviorism, behaviorist models of um, of psychology, which emphasized a lot testability and said, don't speculate about what's in the head, what's in the mind, because you can't see it. Just look at imp- behavioral inputs and behavioral, sorry, environmental inputs and behavioral outputs, right. is that the idea was, oh, psychology has to be like science, that it has to be very rigorous and has to have very testable hypotheses, right? Forgetting that science often refers to unobservables all the time. In mm-hmm. Hard science, I mean, like physics. And one of the attractions of Kuhn was, instead of kind of living up to the Joneses, as this is high model of testability and allegedly theoretical physics, it's like drag the Joneses down to our gutter. The gutter being one that emphasises sociology over yeah. rationality and over testability. So, I mean, I, I'm telling a joke in a way, but the idea is one of the 
influences of Kuhn was to say there's not that much rationality in science. It's much more to do with politics, with sociology. One theory replaces another, not because it's been tested and borne the test better than another theory, but because there are political, sociological and other factors. And that appeals a lot to a lot of people, not just in some of the sciences, so-called soft sciences, but all over the place, because a lot of people have kind of an investment in seeing science as not being special and divided in any special way from non-science. Okay, Dean, this is your area. Well, I mean, how far, how far do these non-scientific influences make a difference in, like, the end results? Well, so the, I mean, it's, I think it's important to keep a couple of se- questions separate here, right? So the the one question is, are there no standards as to what kind of scientific theories are better than other theories, right? So this is this is the kind of Kuhn's problem: is that we have a choice between theory one and theory two. Right. Some scientists like theory one, some scientists like theory two. Can we give some sort of objective account of which theory is actually actually so better? If you've got two theories that sort of seem to explain the evidence equally well, but are sort of different. Yeah. implications, how do you choose between them? Yeah. Well, and so what Kuhn basically said is, well, there are these kind of, uh, there are some theoretical virtues, is the term it's used, uh-huh. such as, you know, theory might be simpler, it might be consistent with what we already know, it might be elegant in some respect, all these sorts of things that we can appeal to, but some scientists might weight these ideas more strongly than others. So some scientists really like simple theories, some scientists like theories that are maximally comprehensive, so they explain everything, and sometimes these different desiderata might be in conflict, right? Right. And so Kuhn thought that these kind of sociological or psychological factors enter kind of in the gaps, right? So if... You know, it explain these psychological factors explain why one scientist might prefer simplicity and another one might prefer comprehensiveness. And at that level, we just can't make a decision as to which virtue is actually more important than the other. Um, all right, so that that's that's the kind of one issue, S- whether in fact there is there are objective criteria. Mm-hmm. The second question is: assuming there are objective criteria, do scientists actually follow these criteria? What for establishing the truth of one theory over another? Right, yeah. yeah. So we could we could as philosophers be able to say, well, here's a criterion which which will always reliably tell us which theory is better given specification of two theories. But it might be the case that scientists don't actually follow such a procedure. Okay. And so there's there's a distinction between the philosophy and the history. There. Okay, uh, go ahead. I just want to add to what Dean is saying, that one of the things that Kuhn said is, there's no simple measure of simplicity, that simplicity is often measured from within a theory. So that adherence, uh, looking at some data from different theories, might have different judgments about simplicity, which seems to make simplicity yeah. subjective. But one thing, I, because I, I was quite negative about Kuhn, but one thing I want to take from Kuhn, which I think is right, is um, philosophers have looked for like the essence of scientificality, right. like a criterion of what it is to be science or non-science. Right. And I think that's a very, very bad way to look at things. I think we would have been much more sophisticated if we would have said, look, there are certain virtues scientific theories can have. One might be simplicity, whether subjectively or objectively measured. One might be having empirical testable consequences, etc. And then we can have an informed debate by saying... One person counts this as science, another person counts it not, not as science. Is it because there's some touchstone of science, or is it because they give different weights to yeah. different scientific virtues? I think it often comes down to that. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, the Freudians, I think one of the reasons they think it counts as a science is because it can explain so much. What do they mean by explain so much? It can fit in a whole lot of anomalous things yeah. into a coherent narrative. Yeah. And that's something that good science does. But it's not all that's necessary for science. So well, sure. I think another thing that counts is empirical testability, which Freud has practically zero of, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So 
I think if we can have, instead of saying Freud is science and Freud or Freud is not science, I'd say, well, what do you count as the important scientific virtues? I think an important one is empirical testability. Yeah. I will admit that Freud can fit a lot of data into a coherent narrative, mm-hmm. and a lot of good physics does that. There's a famous part of physics called renormalization theory, which didn't have any particular empirical consequences, but allowed us to fit yeah. two parts of physics that didn't fit together uh-huh. together. Same virtue Freud has. But physics, the kind of physics associated with normalization theory does have other places where it's empirically testable, that is, it has empirical con- observable consequences. That's what Freud's lacking. All right. Uh, okay, Gary, what um, constitutes scientific proof and what level of proof is good enough to say that something's been established? Uh, I personally don't think you can prove something in science. Okay, then what do you do if you don't prove I, something? I think what you do is you get... Um, a theory which makes successful predictions on a regular basis Um, but whether we can then interpret that theory as telling us something true about reality I think is quite a big leap Doesn't it depend on the theory really? It does, it does indeed Um, although I suppose on some level you're always going to get problems of scepticism as to uh, whether your observations are actually allowing you to know that something is true. Uh, so I think, I, I think there's a difference between actually knowing something and believing with a lot of Well, evidence. you're talking in a lot of generalisations. I think, you know, there are... Uh, I mean, it's difficult to know whether uh, string theory is true, but it's not difficult to know, for instance, whether... Um, I don't know, uh, the photosynthesis uh, is a true theory, for instance. Okay, yeah, I I mean, I I entirely take your point. Um, I think it's that if we're working on the philosophical level, Mm -hmm. um, we have to make certain, in some ways, what Dean is working in, in the area of realism, we have to make certain realist assumptions about the relation between our theory and the world. Mm-hmm. And so, like to, what? well, to say that photosynthesis is is true is not the same as um, a mathematical proof. Yeah. So, in maths, you can prove that something is is true, um, but if if you're dealing with something like photosynthesis, what you're saying is that your theory is in some sense the best explanation yeah. of what we actually observe. Okay, do you agree with that, Dean? Is that a good way of saying... I mean, how would you formulate... Uh, forget the really obvious ones. Let's take something like, uh, I don't know, Schrodinger's wave equation. What's your... Which, say, which is basically an equation uh, dictate, dictating how uh, subatomic particles move through time or change, and they do it in a really weird way. But, I mean... What's the relationship between that and reality, for instance? Well, <laughs> or anything else you might want to. Take. So the the relationship between something and reality is a kind of metaphysical question. I'd rather just stick with the notion of whether whether we should believe theories are true, because I think right. we have some sort okay. of intuitive handle on what we mean when we talk about that. Well, what do you mean? So my my view is that we there's one basic criterion of when we should count. Um, a theory has been true and that's whether it generates novel predictions. That is to say, okay. it predicts things that, as it were, weren't built into the theory. Okay. Right? So, I mean, this is the criticism about Freud, right, is you when you construct an, an explanation for something, you use the fact you know, that uh, people behave in a certain way, you use that fact, 
you put that into the theory, and then the theory regenerates the fact that people will behave in this way. So Freud can't really make any precise predictions about things, and that's why he's not scientific. Is that what right, exactly. Whereas something like Schrodinger's equation, right, we can just put in some boundary conditions for a particular physical situation, uh-huh. apply the equation, and we get we predict the results that are going to happen without knowing what those results were beforehand, right? Okay. Um, so I think that's an important, that's really the important criterion in science. And in fact, that's an important criterion in everyday life, if you think about it. When we believe some hypothesis, even about um, what people are doing on an everyday basis, um, we appeal to hypotheses that explain more than than kind of the inf- information we already have to hand, right? Well, give me an example. Give me an illustration. Um, so if somebody's if drinking a cup of coffee in a shop, for instance. Or how about, how about this? Here's a really simple example. So I can predict when the next train is going to arrive to Cambridge, right? right. How do I know this? Well, I have a certain, I've observed the train leaving for Cambridge on a certain number of occasions. I have an hypo- a hypothesis. The train leaves at 10 minutes after the hour, every hour, yeah. right? That's a simple hypothesis. I, I don't have all the information all the particular observations in there, but it generates all the particular observations that I'm going to observe, right? So there's this kind of notion that a good hypothesis predicts um, new information, and it also kind of unifies a whole lot of phenomena which would otherwise be disparate, right? It's not just one train leaving after another at complete random, but there's some sort of hypothesis that unifies them all. Okay, thanks. Uh, Ken, do you think there's anything more to uh, prove for truth than uh, good predictions? Well, you can have good predictions and be false. So really? uh, truth goes beyond having good predictions. Yeah. The Ptolemaic uh-huh. system, which had the, I mean, the medieval hybrid of Ptolemy, which had all the planets traveling in circular uh, orbits around the Earth, was very good at predicting yeah. what planets would be when at the night sky. Sure. Turns out it's false. But I want to come back to something Gary said. Sure. And Gary pointed that science basically can't give us certainty. And I agree with that. But one thing I think... I want to get across is that's a bit of a red herring because look I'm not even certain that there's a desk in front of me I give it a really really high probability and in some sense I think what science aims for is high probability in the following sense in the sense that is relevant to what Dean said not that your initial hypothesis is highly probable because you're saying some of science uh, some of the most exciting science says very weird stuff as as quantum mechanics demonstrates but then you predict this thing and then after the evidence comes in, because you predicted such a weird, strange thing with such a low probability, the probability of the hypothesis shoots up. Yeah. And I just want to have a sidebar here to say, I was really shocked when uh, recently Professor Dworkin said he's not an atheist, he's an agnostic, yeah, right. Right, because he's not certain that God doesn't exist. Uh-huh. But I don't see that where that's coming from. I'm not certain there's a table here, but I'm not an agnostic about this table. Yeah. I believe the table is here. So I think this is a red herring about not being certain, well, and the, that's a grounds for agnosticism. It's like most of life you have to act on the basis of what is you've got the best reasons to believe is true. There's absolute logical proof is limited to very few things, isn't it? Possibly only mathematics, geometry, and the formal sure. and, and I think that was my only issue, is that um, when we use the word proof... Yeah. In the context of science, we have to be careful about what we think that actually means. And what, what uh, could you sum it up in a sentence? So, well, if if we think that science can prove, for example, that ultimately everything is made of superstrings, um, I think we're never going to find that that is actually the case. So, what can we? 
do if we can't prove? What we can do is we can make theories which make successful predictions. So I think perhaps so, I'm no, leaning... Okay, so what I'm asking, if you're not going to use the word proof, what word will you use? I think I'm leaning towards instrumentalism. In other words, that our theories work and work successfully, uh-huh. but we can't make a metaphysical leap beyond that to the belief that therefore the theories are actually truths about reality. Okay. So uh, for me, the I mean, so this is the realist position, which is classically opposed to instrumentalism. It doesn't have to defeat the sort of radical scepticism Ken is talking about, you know, that w- scepticism about is there in fact a desk in front of me and do other people have minds, that sort of scepticism. What the realist needs to be able to show is that our scientific hypotheses can be we can be ju- as justified and believe in these hypotheses as we are believing in all the other ordinary stuff we believe in, stuff like desks and, yeah. and other people's minds and things of that nature. Okay, all right, we're going to go for a track now. This is going to be Goldfrapp and um, Strict Machine, of course, uh, and then we'll talk more about science.
Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. This is uh, the Philosophy Now radio show on resonance and on podcast at uh, philosophynow.org. Um, stroke podcast and you'll be able to find uh, about 28 of the previous shows if you will, a variety of different um, topics. Uh, I have with me uh, Gary Retallick, Ken James and Dean Peters and we're talking about the limits of science. Um, we were talking before the song about, about what the what the philosophers of science and the scientists sometimes probably call um, instrumentalism versus realism. Instrumentalism being the theory that scientific theories are to be judged in accordance to their predictions or their usefulness and, and realism being the idea that scientific theories directly describe reality um, so um, what more do you want to add about instrumentalism Gary? Um, I don't think I was necessarily wanting to defend the instrumentalist view over and above realism right. but um, I just wanted to point out that uh, instrumentalism can be used as an approach I certainly think many uh, certainly many people I know who work in physics per se yeah. tend to take an instrumentalist approach one of the things about instrumentalism I think is that in some sense it, it's kind of anti-philosophy to some way although it is a philosophy in its own mm. right why is it anti-philosophy? It, in the sense it's saying well we're not going to worry about what the relation of this mm. text this theory is to an a, a, a posited reality beyond the text, uh-huh. putting it in We're just going to use the theory. Exactly. That's what quantum physicists do a lot, they isn't do. it, really? They that's do. the Copenhagen And that's partly because they don't know how else to make sense sure. of what they're doing. Yeah. OK, Ken? Just to be clear on what instrumentalism says, instrumentalism is basically the no-ontology theory of science. So ontology o- Ontology is a theory of what is, a theory right. of being. And what instrumentalism says is, look, science isn't making any claims about what really is there. Like when you say electrons are negatively charged, you're not really committed to the existence of electrons. It's just part of an overall theory that makes for the best observable prediction. Okay, let me stop you there, because how can you say you're not committed to electrons? Because surely every time you turn your computer on, you're relying on the idea that electrons are flowing through wires, right? Well, not according to the instrumentalist. You're giving one of the arguments for realism, but I'm just trying to outline what the position is. And the position is, and it's very much as as Gary alluded to, it's often one of the big arguments um, uh, for instrumentalism is is quantum mechanics, because there is no model for that. Electrons have a superposition. That's a probability being observed here, a probability being observed there. But what does that mean about their actual being? And, Mm -hmm. in fact, one of the most famous instrumentalists, in a sense, was Schrodinger, who said... The whole truth is the equations. Don't look for a theory of being about what's really behind the equations. But that's like just saying we can't know. It's not saying that there isn't anything, really, is it? Well, I think... <laughs> so it's important to keep separate a, a couple of things here, right? So just the f- the fact that we don't have a picture in our minds when we deal with these equations right. doesn't mean in some sense that the theory isn't true, right? It just means right. we can't understand its truth in some importance. That's, uh, can, can I translate that? Our way of imagining what the equations mean isn't necessarily how things are, but it doesn't mean there isn't some potential way of imagining how they are. Or not even potential. Right. I mean, it might just be human beings or limited creatures right. who have happened to come up with a true description of the world, right? But that so, limit, that limitation, 
will result in us just being unable to picture. So the fact that we can't picture 12-dimensional superstrings, for instance, doesn't mean they aren't 12-dimensional. That's what exactly. you're saying, really. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing I just wanted to um, talk about in respect to instrumentalism and realism is we need to be careful about the notion that, that theories are kind of unitary entities and we either need to believe them or not believe them, right? right. Obviously, theories are very complicated entities, right? There are lots of bits and pieces yeah. that relate together in different ways. And bits fall off and join bits all the time. Around, yeah. So... Uh, I think it's very. I think it's important that we recognise that physicists often are instrumentalist about theories, and sometimes with good reason, right? So the standard model, for instance, we physicists have good reason to be instrumentalist about it because there are some pieces which are just logically incompatible with each other, right? We just like. don't. Uh, so, for instance, um, quantum mechanics and uh, uh, general relativity, right? Well, so you can't gen- make them. General relativity describes things at very large scales, cosmological scales. Quantum mechanics describes things at microscopic scales. Mm-hmm. And when we get into the middle, we can't get a consistent account that deals with that deals with that. Both theories don't give a consistent account of the same entities. Why can't you just give a theory of gravity in quantum mechanical terms? Uh, well, that's what people are trying to do, but they okay. are as yet unsuccessful, right? All right. But so, so the important thing is that we should be instrumentalist about the, should be instrumentalist about this theory because we know it in some sense it can't be true. But that isn't to say that there aren't parts of the theory that are true, right? So the parts of the theory where, for instance, you know, we, just, we give these predictions of physical constants to 11 decimal places and these all these sorts of um, statistics which are trotted out, we should definitely believe the parts of the theories which give us these great predictions, but without necessarily adopting a realist attitude altogether. Okay, great. Um, all right, we're just going to move a bit into the, what the limits of science are. So, um, for instance, Ken, what's the difference between science and pseudoscience? <laughs> million dollar question um, well as we've been mentioning before um, one avenue to go up to explore that question is to emphasize testability empirical testability and I, you know there have been big fights between uh, positivists, uh, these were philosophers in the 1930s in Vienna in particular, so called Vienna Circle mm-hmm. and they talked about testing through empirical consequences and confirming a theory inductively or otherwise and then Popper talking about falsifiability but it's like a fight between, from an atheist point of view, looking at a fight between the Catholics and the Protestants uh-huh. they think there's a big fight but from a certain level of abstraction there's a lot of common. What they emphasised was empirical testability. And I do think that's a core feature that we look for in scientific theories. Not to say that all scientific theories are empirically testable. Sometimes they're not empirically testable at one time, as we've mentioned, and later on they are empirically testable. But having observation as some touchstone, not of how you generate the theory, but how you test the theory, is really, really important. On the other hand, I want to mention, and this will come more directly to the limits of science, I think there are certain areas where Not that theories aren't testable, but in a certain sense, theories are going to be, from a scientific point, infirm because of the complications involved. Because where you get testability, it's usually because you can limit your test to a certain number of variables. Mm -hmm. And you can say, you have a controlled situation, you have a certain number of variables at play, and then you, through those interaction of those variables, you predict an outcome. Uh But for instance, with us humans, the variables are just so many that it's not clear you'll ever get that kind of testability. I'm thinking particularly of psychology. So are you saying, therefore, that um, any so-called science to do with the study of humanity or complex biological entities, for instance, is going to be pseudoscience? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I don't expect... uh, For instance, you talked about us as biological beings. Sure, some of biology is testable. Some of biology is, as a matter of fact, not testable. 
um, doesn't mean to say it won't become testable. Uh, people have argued about whether evolutionary theory is testable. I happen to think it is, but that's a wider topic. Uh, but one thing is psychology. That is broadly psychology, predicting humans' behavior, for instance. I think it's, it's, it's not a solvable problem in a certain sense because mm-hmm. of the variables. I think there are limits to our knowledge having to do with complexity factors. Okay. And there's such complexity with us humans that I don't think it's a solvable problem. Let, let me give you an analogy. Mm-hmm. Trying to solve the human problem about what makes us tick in a deep sense is, is like you're looking at a computer screen and you're just seeing words on the computer screen and from that, and that's analogous to our gross behaviour, mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out what program the machine is running. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's a solvable problem. Okay. Well, same with us. We see our behaviour, but to think what's really going on I don't think that's a solvable problem. Unfortunately, I haven't got any psychologists in the studio to, to disagree with you. But, but Gary, I'm going to ask you, what, to, in your opinion, forms the valid, valid range or domain of scientific study? I mean, what does it study and what yeah, doesn't I, it Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that occurs to me, um, as, as Ken was speaking there, is that we seem to have developed um, a kind of model of what science should be. Right. Um, and... I think that a term like pseudoscience has been, um, as it were, created from this notion that there is a particular way of proceeding in science. I certainly agree with testability, but in a way just leading on from what Ken was saying there, I think if we look at something like predicting what the weather is going to be right. tomorrow, that is extremely difficult to do. And but I don't think we would say that meteorology is not a science. We mm-hmm. we understand the mechanisms of the weather very well, but we can't therefore make very detailed predictions. I think you've got to, you've got to uh, make a distinction between uh, sort of analysing the elements which you can do scientifically and combining them together in a, in a complex situation to get a predictable exactly. thing out of that. Exactly, yes. And so I think that kind of, for me at least, means that there are certain other areas of activity which really from people like Popper have tended to be, to some extent, looked down upon as not scientific. Things like psychoanalysis and so on, which I think to try and describe them as scientific is difficult because they don't match the procedures of other um, of, of the hard sciences like physics or biology, for example. But to, therefore, a, a term like pseudoscience is, is quite derogatory very often. Mm-hmm. Um, to dismiss what is being done in those areas, therefore, somehow less useful. Than so you'd rather being... say they're non-scientific, but then they'd want to come along and say, yeah, we are scientific. I, I worry that there is a lack of uh, terminology for those areas of pursuit that we've got this this uh kind of divide between scientific and not scientific and if you're not one you're the other okay um and i I think that maybe there would be room for kind of a third area of activity which is useful but in a different way to what we call science currently so as so often in in philosophy we find out that what we're what we've, one of our problems is we've got a lack of vocabulary yeah. to deal with the concepts yes. that we're sort of generating. Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, what are the limits of what we can know through science, Dean? So, I mean, so one thing I'd just like to talk about here is... W- is there, a proper, is there a proper distinction between science and non-scientific activities? Just like ordinary activities, right. forget about pseudoscience, like Freudian analysis, for instance, mm. but just like our everyday kind of way of getting around, like my early example about managing to catch a train on time because you know the, the schedule, right? 
is that a scientific activity? And that's a genuinely difficult problem to distinguish because intuitively it's not. It doesn't form, it doesn't exist within the kind of discipline of science, right? There aren't people who study in this at universities and right. so on. Um, but if you try to draw a sharp line on a continuum of that sort of activity, you get it more and more complicated uh-huh. until we're talking about particle physics. Is there some sharp line we can draw the distinction? And I think I think I don't think there is. I think we can points to general kind of intellectual strategies of thinking clearly, of trying to uh, find our way on the world successfully that work, but I don't think we can uh, draw a hard line around that. Okay, so you're generally in in agreement with Gary then, really? I think so. The the second point I I just want to talk about is is actually with respect to Darwinian evolution, which is an interesting Mm -hmm. case. Um, So I think we need to draw the distinction between um, being able to pick out... um, make predictions or explanations at a kind of abstract level and at a particular level, right? So in Darwinian evolution, we're able to give very good explanations of certain features that have arisen in in organisms, right? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, we can... Um, eyes of the sort we have, right, with a, with a, a spherical, jelly-filled... Uh, you know, Form, yeah. Yeah, etc. Um, that's very easy to account for. Um, given our understanding of kind of what the possibilities are for biological life, our laws of physics, and so on and so forth. Could you predict, you know, starting a billion years ago that this sort of thing would arise? Maybe, maybe not, right? And certainly if you get a more specific level, we can't predict what's going to happen except in a very narrow range of cases, right? So we can predict if we put bacteria in a culture and we put steadily increasing amounts of antibiotic into that culture, they'll steadily accumulate resistance to Mm -hmm. antibiotic. So we can give that sort of prediction at a general level. What will be the exact mechanism of that resistance? Often we don't know. So doesn't this um, sort of spoil what you were all saying earlier about prediction being so important? I mean, if if the theory of evolution, you can't make predictions... By that criteria, it's not a science, though, is it? Well, so we can make a prediction at the general level, but not necessarily at the specific level, right? So yeah, but you can do that with Freudian psychoanalysis, so... Uh, well, I mean, maybe you can't. I mean, that's what we have to have a disagreement about. Yeah, you right? can say, like, uh, OK, this, this, uh, this man's acting... Um, in this certain way, so therefore we can say he had this sort of relationship with his uh, pair, with his mother or his father, and then you can find out if that's true or not. Right, but so the the criticism of um, Freudian psychoanalysis is right is that it could give a it could e- explain what happened either if X happened or if not X happened, right? So uh-huh. we say, um, okay, given the fact that he had a, such and such a relationship with his mother, we can predict either that he'll be I don't know very aggressive and unfriendly or that he'll be very you know passive passive and friendly and both of those are explanations that arise from the same basic fact i mean so that isn't a prediction okay fair enough all right uh, ken what sort of question can science answer and what sort of question can't it if any it's certainly a question that I can't answer. All right. Then. That, that is, we don't know what science will and will not be able to oh, answer. What sort of I, range of questions? I, I suggested that probably because of the huge number of variables involved with humans, right. that in some sense the solution to predicting our behaviour, there is no scientific solution to that. But I just might be very wrong about that. But they might the, find ways of simplifying, etc. So to predict the limits of science, of what it, domains it will, will cover in the end, is very, very difficult. I have my educated guess that it won't well, cover up. Well, I was going to sort of say, look, maybe we can't predict individual behaviour because we'll never know enough about 
all the factors that go into influencing an individual's choice, but surely we can predict statistically the behaviour of, say, a million people of a certain class or something like that. So there are levels of prediction you can do with human beings still, no? Yes, it's called the dismal science, economics. Uh-huh. Um, but, but look, even to go against what I just said, and to echo something Dean said, in some sense there is a psychology that uh, predicts fairly accurately what people will do. It's called folk psychology. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's a folk psychological prediction that you guys aren't going to suddenly become violent towards me. Right? Right. Well, and it's based on various you know, factors, etc., and I hope the prediction turns out to be successful. But you know, we use folk psychology, like my students predict that I will turn up to my class tomorrow. Right. So, so, yes, human behavior is in some gross way uh, predictable, but it, what really might count is that it doesn't add up to a systematic, organized body of knowledge. And in that sense, that might be one of the things we look for in science. It's one of the standard definitions of science, that it's a certain kind of systematization. And folk psychology resists that kind of, uh, though it can be very accurate, resists okay. that kind of systematization. So systematization is equally as important as predictability and testability, right? It's one of the things, points I wanted to get out there. Okay, fair enough. Uh, finally, we've only got a few minutes left. but um, Okay, Gary, uh, given the Frankenstein or Brave New World type problems with science, what what we can call its inevitable dubious consequences, what limits should be put on scientific research, do you think? I, I think that's a, a very difficult one um, because one of the areas that science doesn't seem able to address is the area of ethics and uh-huh. how we should behave. I think scientists, as a, in a kind of abstract way, can provide certain, as it were, technological solutions Um, But then we need some other method of assessing whether those solutions are actually acceptable. So, for example, genetically modified food, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, Science can certainly produce food, which is genetically modified, but we then have some other range of criteria that we need in order to um, make the assessment of whether we should be doing that. Um, So so I think think the limit... point I'm really making is that the limits have to be decided in a kind of non-scientific way perhaps, unless you're going to say that potential consequences are themselves a kind of over-science of science. Alright, okay Uh, I think that's probably a a good enough place to end unless anybody's got anything to add I would just put in a little word here for philosophy, and I'm going to use some very old etymology. Science the Latin word scientia has to do with knowledge, right. whereas philosophy, sophia, is the operative word in philosophy, wisdom. Uh-huh. And I think one of the points uh, Gary is getting at is science aims for things like truth. It doesn't necessarily aim for wisdom. No. That's why we have to leave in our science with a bit of philosophy every now and then. Okay, yeah. So uh, we got philosophers saying that philosophy should should be used even in science yes i agree there you go <laughs> yeah. uh, all right thanks a lot guys um just any anything anybody wants to plug any websites or books or anything okay ken i always plug simon may's book nietzsche's war on morality okay all right no i've got nothing all right uh, I'll think of that. <laughs> right, I've got a couple of books I want you to buy. You can download them electronically. One of them is The Meta Revolution, which is a meta revolutionary uh, manifesto. You have to read it to understand what the hell that means. And the other one's Love, Solitude, and Destruction, featuring such uh, lovable short stories as Buddha in Hell. All right, this is going to be Jean Michel Jarre, and I'll see you next week, or somebody will.